This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have an interview with Ansley, we have Dinosaur of the Day, Archaeo Ornithomimus, and we have a bunch of dinosaur news. But first, as always, we would like to thank some of our Stegosaurus patrons, and this week we would like to thank Chris, Nicholas, Blaze Campbell, Trent Carbajal, Stefan, Nutmeg, Taya, and Glenn Liddell. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate all of your support. And to celebrate, well, the fact that Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom is coming out so soon, and also because we love our patrons, we've created some bonus content we'll be releasing. Well, the first one is today to go along with today's episode, but every week from now until Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom comes out, we're be releasing bonus episodes on our Patreon featuring the dinosaurs that appear in Jurassic Park and Jurassic World. Yeah, just like we're going through some of the dinosaurs of the day that we haven't covered from Jurassic World and Jurassic Park, we're going back and looking at the ones that we have covered, going all the way back to episode one, actually. So picking and choosing those and then talking about how they appeared in the movies and what we think is going to be in Jurassic World with them. So if you want to get those episodes as well as bonus extra content from our interview with the Dino Geek, then join our Patreon. And if you're already a patron, thank you very much. Yes. So you can check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Anywho, we've got a new Spinosaur from Brazil. It's not really a named new Spinosaur, but it is some new remains. So basically, we've talked before about how Spinosaurus was likely semi-aquatic and ate a lot of fish, possibly that it might have even been quadrupedal. And then there are some relatives of Spinosaurus that lived in Brazil. So there's Baryonyx and also Suchomimus that were likely bipedal based on their size and kind of their arms are a little bit smaller. And there's also Angonturama, which may be a synonym for Irritator. And I think Sabrina covered this when we had Irritator as the dinosaur of the day. Basically, we only have the tip of part of the mouth for Angonturama, whereas we have kind of the other part of the mouth for Irritator. How irritating. Yeah, it is irritating. Just one of the many things irritating about Irritator. (laughs) So we're not really sure if they're the same dinosaur. It it seems possibly likely, but we have so little of that first dinosaur that who knows. To go along with this paper published in Cretaceous Research, Tito Aureliano did a really great video along with one of the other co-authors, Aline Gilardi, And they really go in a lot of detail into this. So if you want to see their take on it, then we'll have a link in our show notes for the YouTube video where they talk all about it because they really show a lot of details about their study. It's about 10 minutes long, so it's pretty thorough. But combining that with the paper, (laughs) there's a lot of interesting information. So Tito in the video says that there's a lot of spinosaur material in the National Museum of Brazil, which hasn't been described yet. So it's kind of like a tease for things to come. He said that there will probably be more research coming. And that's really awesome because Spinosaur material is so rare. And like even just getting the tip of that mouth, we named a new dinosaur based on it because we have so few species named after the Spinosaur group. And in this case, it's really just a small part of a tibia. So it's kind of the upper end of the tibia, not the very tip that where it kind of attaches to the rest of the body, but like sort of near the end of the tibia. 
not really any exciting part of bone. Like if you found this of a hadrosaur, no one would care. They might just even leave it in the field because it's so unexciting. But for spinosaurs, since they're so rare, it's still an incredibly important bone. And it's actually broken because it's only the small piece. So you can actually see that it's a little bit more solid and dense than other dinosaurs and what you might expect from a dinosaur of this age. So they found this bone, if you're wondering, in Araripe Basin, I think is how you say it, in the northeast end of Brazil. It's kind of by that point in Brazil where it used to be next to Nigeria when <laughs> Brazil was nested in with Africa back in the Cretaceous. So not really by any major cities, kind of out in the sticks, but the bone is really cool because it's broken and you can see that it's pretty solid. And then on top of that, they CT scanned it and sliced out a little piece so that they could also kind of quantify how dense it was. And they described it as being similar in density to penguins. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. And they said it's actually really common when you have animals that go from land back into the water, because we know all animals at one point came from the water to land. But then when they went back, most of the animals on land kind of have a little bit of hollowness to the bones because it's advantageous to be light. When you're in the water, it doesn't really matter because of the way buoyancy works and the water kind of offsets it. You want to actually be a little bit heavier so you kind of sit down in the water. You're not constantly bobbing up to the surface unless you're like a duck or something. So <laughs> in the case of a lot of these animals like manatees or spinosaurs, it turns out, they evolve denser bones so that they can kind of sit in the water a little bit easier and it, it prevents them from floating. And there's actually a fancy word for this. It's called osteosclerosis. Oh. <laughs> Sounds like osteoporosis. I was just, or scoliosis, yeah. like a mix of the two. Yeah, but it's osteosclerosis. That's the densening of bones, I guess, or removing that kind of hollow chamber that's in the center of bones. And we have this too. It's full of bone marrow, but that's still a lot lighter than regular dense bone tissue would be. So the reason this is important is Tito says that these spinosaurs could have waded out into shallow water in order to catch fish rather than just catching them from the shore. And that's typically how we see spinosaurs depicted. You see them kind of sitting on the shore with their head out into the water and their nostrils possibly above it and then waiting for a fish to swim through their jaws and then clomping down and swallowing the fish. But they're saying that since the bones are dense, they might have been able to wade out at least into shallow water. They're not thinking that they were swimming out in the open ocean, competing with mosasaurs or anything like that, but maybe in a river or on the edge of a lake or maybe even the edge of the sea, I guess, wading out a little bit and then getting fish that way rather than just staying purely on the shore. So that's definitely interesting. And I could see how it would be advantageous, even if it wasn't the primary feeding method. If you're spending all this time by the edge of the shore and you're eating fish, maybe once in a while you do need to go out because the type of fish that comes right up to the shore isn't around. And even though it's not the ideal way, just like how alligators generally eat fish, but if there aren't fish around, they might chomp down on some other kind of animal heading over to their water yeah, hole. When you're hungry. Yeah. And, you know, if it helps, it helps. I was just thinking there's no safe place for fish. No, not after <laughs> all these millions of years of <laughs> predators evolving, especially because most fish eat other fish. There's definitely no safe place. <laughs> it's true. So on top of that, on top of them heading out into shallow water, there's a couple other interesting things about LPPPV0042, which is the name of this dinosaur officially <laughs> because Just it can't throw that out there yeah it can't really be assigned it might be an angontorama or it might be irritator or those might be the same thing or it might be another thing entirely because we only have the small piece of a tibia so who's to say which one it is but they estimate that the animal was at about 10 meters or 30 feet long when it died which is pretty sizable for a dinosaur Although it was still a sub-adult, which means that it was still growing, and an adult might have been as big as Spinosaurus, which likely would have made it the apex predator of the area. So that's pretty awesome. 
everybody likes to think of Spinosaurus as an apex predator. And then people like me become a buzzkill and we say, no, they were bigger no. <laughs> or at least almost as big theropods on land at the time. And, you know, if they ever got into some kind of battle, Spinosaurus would have lost. Unless it was in water. Yeah. But even in water, I don't know you're fighting another thing with legs and a, and a head. But in this case, there doesn't appear to be any other huge dinosaurs that were on land. So it may have been an apex predator. We don't know. And also being likely an irritator, it appeared about 10 million years before Spinosaurus, which led to a lot of talk about how this is the earliest evidence of bones becoming more dense in the Spinosaur lineage, at least. And in the video, they also said that they want to look at older specimens to see when these denser bones appeared exactly. Is 10 million years as early as they showed up? Or did they show up even earlier? We don't know. We got to find more bones. And then, and finally, they hinted at whether maybe a gigantism is associated with being semi-aquatic. So if you're spending part of your time on land and part of your time in the water hunting, is there something about being huge that helps with that? They want to study it. And hopefully they find answers in the bones they already have in the museum. Or new bones that they go find. All the bones. Yeah. <laughs> Up next, we've got a paper from Nature by Daniel Field and others. And this one's all about a ichthyornis. At least it's a study of ichthyornis. Ichthyornis. And ichthyornis, if you don't remember... Specifically to me, <laughs> it looks like a seagull with teeth, sort of gull-sized, and it's ichthyornis. It's actually called that because of the vertebrae in its back looking like fish vertebrae, not because <laughs> it likely ate fish, which some people think it did. But yeah, it's got kind of these small, more sharp teeth, almost like pterosaur-looking teeth, at least to me. And they say in the paper that there have been no substantial new cranial material found since the 1870s. So it's been quite a while since we've seen that. We found the earliest Archaeopteryx, some of them in the 1870s, but we found more periodically since then. Not so with Ichthyornis. And Ichthyornis is an incredibly important dinosaur because it's right at that transition between dinosaurs and modern birds. So it still has teeth. But it clearly was a capable flyer, and it's got certain dinosaur features, certain more bird-like features, so it's a really great sort of transitional specimen. So what these researchers did, though, was they took three existing skulls, obviously existing if nothing's been found since 1870, and they created a new composite 3D model by combining details from these three skulls. So the way that they put it in a lot of the news stories is that this dinosaur has a transitional beak, or in other words, it shows you how dinosaurs sort of evolved into birds. And we've kind of known about that for a while, but specifically what they discovered in this study is that it appears to have had a toothless part of the beak at the very tip of the beak. So there's sort of a toothless part just way at the end, and then the rest of it is full of teeth. And the reason they say that this might have been there was for things like preening or other things where it's useful to have a little bit more dexterity or something where teeth might get in the way when it's at the end of the beak. On top of that, they found, this is actually probably more significant, that the skull is a little bit more mobile than we previously thought. So if you think about a bird preening, they can really bend their head around. They can do little subtle movements with their beak to kind of like nibble at little bits of their feathers and they can move their jaw in kind of interesting, flexible ways that things like humans can't. <laughs> the upper jaw specifically can like move a little bit. And it's really useful for birds. Previously, we've thought that this evolved along with flight because we thought, okay, the brain is getting a little bit smaller. It allowed for the jaw muscles to get a little bit smaller. It got rid of the teeth, all this kind of stuff to get lighter. So the head got a lot lighter. It made more space for the brain with the muscles shrinking around it. And therefore it could figure out how to fly and all this kind of stuff. But what we see when we redevelop this model of ichthyornis is that it had these larger jaw muscles and still had teeth in its beak while its brain was still developing in a little bit more of an avian sort of way. 
So it's kind of shifting the way that we think about the evolution of birds and what order things happened in. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah, that is. They also say, <laughs> because whenever there's a paper about a new 3D model, I look to see if I can get it because I like looking at these and messing with them and once in a while printing them. But they say that the three-dimensional models and data are archived and available on request from the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History. Oh, will you be requesting? Yeah, see, I think if I request it, they're going to be like, so what's your affiliation with what university and what are you going to do with it? So that's kind of a bummer. Not just, I want to print it out and hang it in my living room. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if they'll give it to me. And I think the reason it's at Yale Peabody is at least two of the skulls were from Yale Peabody. So they're kind of keeping it close to the vest. Makes sense. It's a bummer. But come a long way since the 1870s. Yeah, that you can make a 3D model by combining a composite of these different dinosaur fossils. Yeah, it's really cool. You can see some cool videos of the CT scans in the paper, though, which is pretty fun. Although you have to have access to nature in order to see it. Nature's all around. <laughs> I guess we all have access to nature. <laughs> I'm talking about the, the scientific journal. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Next, we've got an update on Tumblr Ridge in British Columbia and Canada. The feud over funding is uh, still going. A feud, huh? Yeah, that's how this article put it. And it kind of makes sense because there's been a lot of back and forth. Bottom line right now, unfortunately, the museum's been forced to shut down because they don't have enough funding. But the district of Tumblr Ridge wrote an open letter back in April saying that they've been trying, apparently for the past 10 years, to get the museum to change from being science-based to tourism-friendly. And they wanted the museum to also work with the United Nations Educational Scientific Cultural Global Geopark. And I guess that didn't work out, and the museum was more science-focused, which I guess I could see both sides. Yeah, it is kind of a fine line because you've got... Things with zero science, but have, you know, like big animatronics and stuff like that that are exciting for visitors. And then you've got things on the other end where they basically have very little space for visitors, but they're doing all kind of research. A lot of times that's more like universities have that kind of museum going. So I guess really it makes sense that the city wants them to make it more tourism friendly because that's where they get their money from. People coming to town and spending money, not scientists working in the museum. Yeah. So there's a lot of people right now looking at different ways to get funding for the museum. And some people think that the province, British Columbia, should be funding it. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. I mean, there's always that battle over who pays. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Although in Canada, it seems like it's a little bit easier to get funding than in the U.S. So hopefully they can work it out. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully the museum's not closed for too long. Next, we just want to give a quick shout out Dr. Mary Higby Schweitzer, who's a professor at North Carolina State University. We've definitely talked about her and her work before. She's getting an award of excellence in paleontology from the Canadian Fossil Discovery Center in Morden. Nice. Very cool. Congratulations. <laughs> in less happy news, in Utah at Red Fleet State Park, uh, visitors have been throwing pieces of dinosaur tracks into a nearby Ugh. lake. Yeah, it sounds like they don't realize they're dinosaur tracks. They're just looking for rocks to throw. And the rocks happen to be pieces of dinosaur tracks. Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah, there's estimates that at least 10 of the larger footprints that are 3 to 17 inches have disappeared in the past six months. And a lot of the rocks and slash dinosaur footprints... They sink to the bottom of the water, and some of them shatter, some of them dissolve, so you're not going to get them back. But the park is thinking about sending a diving team to recover, if they can, anything from the bottom of the water. But for now, they just have a lot of signs asking tourists, please don't touch the sandstone. (laughs) There's no charges that have been filed recently, but apparently you can be charged with a felony for this. And Devin Chavez from the Utah Division of State Parks said that they plan on cracking down more. Yeah, if there's a bunch of signs out, I don't know why people keep messing with it. Well, they're putting more signs out, so I don't know how many there were in the last six months. I could see both sides of it, though, because when I was younger, I I just looked for any kind of rock to throw. And it's exciting to throw rocks into water. It makes a big splash. The bigger the rock, the better. (laughs) It's just you can't get it back. dinosaur footprints, Yeah. yeah. They're probably pretty weathered, too, if they're broken apart that easily and easy to throw and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that's a bummer. That's why it's nice to have better signage and things like that. Definitely. In Bangkok, recently there was a fire at a closed dinosaur theme park. So it's good. Nobody was hurt. 
It started from sparks from a welding torch, and it was an accident due to demolition work. So actually, that dinosaur park, dinosaur planet, has been closed since April 2016 after a fire destroyed a Ferris wheel cabin. And so now they're demolishing it so that they can build a new shopping mall. Okay. So there was a fire due to demolition of the dinosaur park. Yes, which had to (laughs) shut down because of a different fire. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I see. So it's, it sounds like a very flammable dinosaur park. It's, yeah. it's probably good to get it out of there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. On May 19th, the Royal Gorge Experience will have a Stegomania event from Ooh. 1 to 3 p.m. Yeah, that's a good name, Stegomania. They're welcoming their new Stegosaurus display. You might remember the Royal Gorge Experience because of their animatronic T-Rex that, well, speaking of fires, went up in flames from an electrical fire this past March. We talked about the video. It's very apocalyptic looking. Yeah, it's a fun one. Yeah, well, it probably wasn't fun if you were there. They had fun with it, it sounded like that. Oh, that's true. They do. They were joking about it because no one was hurt, so that's good. Yeah. Well, so the Stegosaurus, uh, Mike Tribal custom built it and it was based on a 3d scan of bones from the denver museum of nature and sciences stegosaurus and he said he thinks that this is the first dinosaur skeleton made completely from 3d scanning and printing and it took them two years to make and now stegomania will have a presentation on the whole creation process cool yeah they're also going to have a presentation for kids and stegosaurus themed crafts and giveaways oh and the museum has also ordered a replacement animatronic t-rex i hope they make it more realistic a good opportunity <laughs> <laughs> that's true it sounds like that's what they're interested in based on the stegosaurus yeah yeah at first i was thinking that the stegosaurus was just a replacement for the t-rex because now you've obviously got some space but they've been working out for two years so yeah wonder what they'll get next I mean, after the T-Rex. <laughs> On May 26th, Pangea Land of Dinosaurs in Arizona is hosting their first Jurassic Fight Night at 6.30 p.m. That's also a good name. It's got a nice ring to it. Jurassic Fight Night. Sounds like a fight club. It is, basically. What? <laughs> yeah, it's dinosaurs in a boxing ring. Uh, there's going to be three fights. Three, they're two-minute rounds each in three rounds. Let's what see, is three two-minute rounds. Yeah. Well, so I couldn't find that much information. I don't know how it's going to work exactly being in the boxing ring if it's like people in costumes or some kind of fancy show i'm guessing costumes if they have a boxing ring the only things i could think of were either it's just a video of like cgi happening or people in costumes it's ten dollars to attend which seems pretty cheap yeah they probably already have these costumes for something else and then they're just doing it this way. But how they're calling it boxing. Yeah. Or no, they're calling it fighting. It's a fight. Yeah. Oh, I In mean, a boxing ring. Yeah. So, okay. You've got the stegosaurus. It'll probably like swing its tail at whatever it's fighting. And they then... don't have stegosaurus. Okay. They've got their fighters listed. It's Rex, the carnivore king. Okay. Rowdy Rotter Raptor. Steve, the spine crusher Spinosaurus. And Harry, the hammer Utah Raptor. So there's a raptor in there. That's cool. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then the winner gets bragging rights. I think they missed the opportunity on a Thyria foran, though. You need a Stegosaurus or an Ankylosaurus or something. Yeah, with the tail. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. If anybody goes, let us know how that is. Yeah, we're curious. Tell us what they do. (laughs) Next, I've actually seen a few articles from the Smithsonian writing about dinosaurs in China and museums in China. And they had a cool one. It was a list of 10 Chinese museums where you could see fossils up close. And I took a look. It includes Shandong Tianyu Nature Museum, which is ranked as the largest dinosaur museum on the planet. There's three museums in Beijing, all of which have, as you might not be too surprised, the most bird-like dinosaurs. And there's Henan Geological Museum, which has... yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I knew about Shandong, too, but that one's especially cool, too. Yeah. Well, they have Ryangosaurus, which is one of the largest sauropods, and it's the largest sauropod from Asia. Yeah. Yeah, there are some great dinosaur museums, especially in northern China. I got to make sure all these are on our dinosaur map. Yeah. I'm falling kind of far behind. I got this long list I need to add to it now that we've got it up and running again. Yeah, there's a lot of good ones. Next, Ariel Marcy he has a new do-it-yourself version of her board game, Go Extinct. You might recognize 
her name and the board game because we've interviewed her. And now you can design your own version of the game on Steam Galaxy. So you choose your tree. The options are Great Barrier Reef, Australian Megafauna, Australian Marsupials, Venomous Snakes, Flowering Plants, and Dinosaurs. You might be able to tell that Ariel lives in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> Based on those options. Then once you pick your tree, then you can pick species for your tree and colors. And then you generate your cards and print them out. And examples of species include Thunderbird or Demon Duck of Doom for the dinosaur <laughs> bird group. Yeah. <laughs> they've got fun names. I think they also have the scientific name, but then they've created these fun names for the kids. Cool. And the artwork's by paleontologist Anthony Romilio, so it's pretty accurate. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And next, we have some potential spoilers for the new Jurassic World movie. They are spoilers. <laughs> Not just potential spoilers. <laughs> for Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom as well as Jurassic World 3. It's pretty great that there's at least one new thing each week. Yeah. <laughs> so Colin Trevorrow gave an update on Jurassic World 3 and how it does not include hybrid dinosaurs. And it took me a minute of reading that. I was thinking, like, of course it does, because there's the Indoraptor that's coming out in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. But then it's like, oh, wait, Jurassic World 3, that movie that's not coming out until June 11th, 2021. <laughs> but Colin's directing the film. And instead of having hybrid dinosaurs, he said they'll be getting, quote, a little back into the paleontological wild animal true dinosaur nature of all of it, end quote. Awesome. Yeah. He also said, quote, if I could contextualize each film, I would say Jurassic World was an action adventure. Fallen Kingdom is kind of a horror suspense film. And Jurassic World 3 will be a science thriller in the same way that Jurassic Park was, end quote. Cool. Yeah. Which makes me think it'll be more scientifically accurate, too. Yeah, that's great. I would definitely say that those are pretty accurate depictions. And if you had to depict the first three, I would say that Jurassic Park 3 was the most action adventure <laughs> So it's surprising that they didn't go for a more scientific one for the first one, since that's Jurassic World 
was kind of a recreation of Jurassic Park, which was obviously the most scientific. Oh, I see. Maybe it was to build up more excitement for the new series. Yeah. But Jurassic Park 3 was so unpopular and it was basically just an action movie. So it's interesting. Although The Lost World is pretty action adventure too. They I'm excited. All were. <laughs> yeah. Of those three types, the science is probably my favorite, but horror is also great. So these next two should be really good. And now on to our interview with Ansley. <laughs> We're joined today by Ansley. She's a photographer, sculptor, painter, and all-around artist. And of course, she has made some really beautiful dinosaur creations, and that's why we're talking to her today. So the first thing that I saw you make was a post you did on Reddit of this Parasaurolophus out of, I guess it's Sculpey. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the material that I'm using for this sculpture is a Super Sculpey Medium, which is a blend of Super Sculpey and a Super Sculpey Firm. So it's got a really nice malleability to it, which, uh, you know, holds a lot of really good detail and everything. Super easy to work with. And it's not an air dry clay or anything. So I can take, you know, all the time I need to work on it. How long does it take you to create something like this? Because it looks so detailed. It just depends on the size of the piece. Like this one, I think so far, I've probably put in about maybe 15 or 20 hours. And that's just, you know, going back and like, refining the form and everything, detailing. That's going to be a whole nother process. It's going to take several more hours. Gotcha. And it looks pretty big too. Is that like a foot long? Yeah, he's about roughly 20 inches from head to tail. And let's see, he's probably probably about seven or eight inches tall at the, the highest point here. Cool. How'd you pick a Parasaurolophus to sculpt? Honestly, it's one of the most commonly known dinosaurs. And I'm just, I don't know, a huge nerd for, <laughs> for some of the staples, you know, like Tyrannosaurus and uh, Stegosaurus and all that. I just really love like the uh, the crazy headgear that they've got. And it's, I don't know, just, just super weird dinosaurs have always like really intrigued me. Yeah, they are weird. Um, so, so did you like, it's really realistic. Did you like study how dinosaurs move or anything in order to get into making an accurate sculpture? Yeah, I've pretty much just been scouring the internet for, you know, the most accurate references I can find. I'm also involved in a paleo art group on Facebook that has a lot of, you know, more experienced artists who have been giving me a lot of advice. So anytime like I'm kind of stumped on something or I'm not really sure if I'm fleshing them out correctly, I just kind of like pose a question there and people will give me their input. Yeah, that's really helpful. <laughs> yeah. So I've actually made a lot of corrections just based on their advice. So it's been really helpful. Nice. And then I think you answered somebody on Reddit when they were asking like how you made it. And it's actually like several layers. You've got wire and a bunch of other stuff. How'd you come up with that style? Is that kind of standard or is that something you decided to do? That's actually pretty standard. Um, when you're making a sculpture, especially with a polymer clay like this, you want to make like an inner armature. And this is you're basically like your foundation to build on. Polymer clay too, you know, you can only make it so thick or it won't bake properly. So you have to have something to bulk it out. So that's basically what the armature is. It's also, let's see, it's made with a, a Vez epoxy sculpt, which is epoxy uh, clay that hardens like concrete. And that one is air dry. So I use that as my base and build, you know, with polymer clay over top of that. And it's really, really sturdy. Oh, cool. So you do like... A, a rough outline of its body shape and then you do all the detail and the sculpy stuff? Yeah. Sometimes I do like a sketch or something, um, just, you know, the general shape and then cut my wire to the right specifications, attach everything together and then start filling it out. Nice. Is that you also had that really awesome looking Spinosaurus bust. Was that a similar process for that one? Not for that one. That one was done with monster clay, which is an oil based clay which is like a reusable material. So I basically made that one uh, specifically for uh, mold making and casting. So I actually did make several copies of that one. And then once I finished making the copies, that piece was destroyed. Interesting. Is that just so that people know that they got like a limited edition one? Not necessarily. Honestly, when you use monster clay and make a mold, a lot of times it's going to get destroyed anyway. So... <laughs> 
Yeah, once you pull it out of the mold, it's it's pretty much ruined. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. That's cool. How many copies of that Spinosaurus did you make? I believe I made 15, which honestly, I actually still have all of those because I had planned on taking them to some shows, but then didn't end up being able to go. So Yeah, that looks really cool. Is your artwork pretty much all primarily about dinosaurs? No, honestly, for probably the majority of, I guess, my artistic interests or career has been fantasy-based. But dinosaurs have, have always been like a special interest to me. It's only been relatively recently that I've pretty much been focusing a lot of my sculpture work, especially on just dinosaurs. <laughs> honestly, I feel like they're better than any sort of mythological creature because they actually existed, you know? They do have their quirks. <laughs> right. You got all the creativity just right there in nature. So Yeah, that's really cool. How do you paint some of these? I'm looking at a stegosaurus that you made and it's like really colorful. Did you paint all that by hand? Yeah, I honestly just use acrylic craft paints. Oh, okay. <laughs> that piece is actually really old. <laughs> I've gotten a little bit better since that one. I like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also really like the Diplodocus you did. It kind of reminds me of a coral snake or something, the way it's like red and it's got these black vertical stripes down oh, its tail. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was uh, one of my miniatures. So I think that one was, I think only like maybe four or five inches. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's pretty small. Are those harder to do? Honestly, no, not really. You know, obviously a lot less time goes into a smaller piece than something bigger. Back then, too, that one is also an older piece. Like, I wasn't really paying too much attention to anatomical correctness or anything. So that's why I'm like, ooh, don't look at those. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's, I mean, they look pretty accurate, though. There's, like, a very wide range of, from, like, the hyper-realistic ones to the ones that are just, like, they look like they were made in the 40s and nothing has been updated. And yours are pretty close to modern you know maybe there's some subtle things you could change but they're pretty good i like them thank you i especially like your paris Arolophus, but you like you said you've been working with like paleo artists on that one so that's like the your new gold standard it sounds like <laughs> yeah <laughs> so what are you gonna do with your paris Arolophus, and what did you do with these other ones when you were done making them well for this uh sculpt here that i'm working on i'm going to take them to a few shows this year and then after that, I'll, if somebody's interested in buying them, I'll probably sell them. I like to keep them for a little while because they're kind of like, kind of like babies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't want to kind of show them off for a little while and then, you know. But yeah, the smaller ones, I actually don't have anymore. Those ones got sold. Gotcha. So you talked about how you go to shows. Are those the uh, comic convention type things? Yeah, pretty much any that are... Relatively close to Kentucky, I go to because that's where I'm from. Cool. Are there a lot around there? I guess there are comic conventions everywhere now. Oh, yeah. No, there's there's a ton. (laughs) Nice. There's almost too many. (laughs) (laughs) Do people really like the dinosaurs when you go to those conventions? Yeah. Honestly, like I haven't been to any shows recently and I've only just started, you know, trying to do sculpture work professionally. So I haven't really exhibited too much work sculpture work that is at any shows. So this year will be my first where I'm mostly focusing on exhibiting sculpture work. Before that, you were doing like paintings and things like that? Yeah. So I also saw on your profile that you've done some comic book illustrations. Have you ever done a dinosaur comic? I have not. (laughs) (laughs) I do actually have a personal comic that I'm working on where... (laughs) Some of the creatures in it are a little bit dinosaur inspired, so they've kind of infiltrated every aspect of my life a little bit. (laughs) Nice. What's the comic about? The comic is Attention Demons. It is the story of a woman named Mary who uh, lives in this alternate dimension uh, that's populated by demons, and she basically works as like a bounty hunter. So it's a little, uh, you know, tropey and campy, but it's fun. (laughs) That sounds pretty cool. So is she hunting like dragons or, or, I mean, dinosaurs or what's she, what's the relationship with dinosaur or dinosaur like things? Honestly, um, they just kind of appear and, you know, just kind of in the background. They're not necessarily like um, very prevalent. I just wanted to 
I guess, kind of combine a little bit of my interests of dinosaurs into it in some kind of way. So there's, you know, little animals or creatures that they encounter. My main characters will kind of run across that, you know, have some similarities to dinosaurs, but they're actually demons. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. Yeah, dinosaurs are good for that. They have so many crazy features that you can just kind of turn them into all sorts of fantasy creatures. Right. And then you also recently launched a Patreon page, right, for your sculptures? I did, but I don't run it anymore because I just at the time I was not, I just didn't have the time to really invest in it because I was focusing on a lot of commission work and it just, yeah, I would like to set it back up again, but at this point in time, I just don't don't have the free time, unfortunately. So what are you spending most of your time on these days? Right now I'm getting ready for some shows. A friend of mine is going to be exhibiting with me. Uh, we're both collaborating on a project that I can't talk too much about. I'll just say that it's a horror movie that she's going to be directing. And I'm kind of like the creature designer. <laughs> oh, that that's sounds, fun. Yeah, that sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, it, it's going to be a, a fun little indie movie. But but yeah, that, that's actually something that I've really been aspiring to do. You know, work as like a, a visual effects artist on like films. So that could be my my entry. Would that involve a lot of sculpting then? Oh, yeah, definitely. Probably some prosthetics and all that too, So, which I'm going to have to uh, brush up on. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I would have no idea where to start with making a prosthetic. (laughs) No. Yeah. (laughs) That's cool. It's a process. Well, are there any other upcoming projects that you're working on? Nothing too major um, other than this dinosaur sculpture and my personal comic. The shows that my friend and I are going to try to get into, that's really like my main focus right now. So we're just going to be promoting our projects. Awesome. Yeah. And more dinosaurs, I assume, in general. Yes, definitely more dinosaurs, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any plans when you're done with the Parasaurolophus? Do you know what kind of dinosaur you want to do next? I'm not 100% sure. I know that I want to do a theropod of some sort. I have some ideas, but, you know, I'm not like, I haven't picked one definitely. There's one called, I think it's concavenator mm-hmm. it's super weird it basically looks like a land shark yeah, <laughs> yeah. You that's know, true. weird sail on its back or it's actually just you know it almost looks like a little dorsal fin it does yeah it's kind of crazy have you ever repeated dinosaurs or are you always looking for something new and new kinds of crazy to tackle i try to do a different dinosaur each time unless you know somebody approaches me and they want a commission of something that maybe i've done in the past and you know that's a different scenario but yeah generally i try to like not do the same thing twice gotcha cool and how do you find your inspiration like i mean concavenator is awesome and cool and looks really weird but like, how did you first decide you know you, you i don't know going through descriptions or something and something jumps out at you and like i want to do that weird one <laughs> Generally, like, I just look up a list of dinosaurs and I'm like, all right, who's got the weirdest name here? (laughs) (laughs) I like that approach. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then, you know, do a little bit of research and learn about them. And the thing about it is, like, I love that there's just so much information out there about dinosaurs that you're not going to run out of any good material. Yeah. (laughs) It's all really inspiring. Yeah. I was thinking like the connection because you've got some horror type stuff going and I saw one sculpture you made of a marine reptile eating like an ichthyosaur or something. Oh, yeah. Have you thought about doing like a dinosaur related like tableau like that? Like maybe horse themed or something? Or just, yeah, like one attacking another one or like a more diorama style. Yeah, I actually have. I did a tiny one with a Taurosaurus and an Overaptor. I think that's on my Instagram somewhere. But yeah, basically the Overaptor is kind of coming in and trying to take this Taurosaurus's eggs and she's not having <laughs> it. So. <laughs> Poor Overaptor, always getting a bad rap. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I would like to do a diorama. I think somebody on Reddit had actually asked me to do something like that or if I'd be interested in doing a project like that and definitely for sure i think that would be an interesting uh action scene to kind of capture yeah (laughs) how long have you been working with on dinosaurs my interest in them is you know i think as it is with pretty much anybody else started with childhood you know you go to uh I think I was like five or six when Jurassic Park came out and that was that was it for me. (laughs) (laughs) 
Now, Jurassic World, on the other hand, I'm not too keen on. (laughs) The first one, at least, was decent. But that actually, you know, kind of fueled my passion. I didn't really start seriously creating dinosaur art until, honestly, just a few years ago. I guess my skill sets had pretty much changed because I, you know, started dabbling in sculpture work. And that's when I really wanted to explore my abilities with creating my own dinosaurs. I've always been fascinated with dinosaur sculptures and everything. And now I kind of feel like I'm at the level where I can make my own. And that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, that is cool. Uh, Yeah. Just looking at these pictures, they're amazing. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Awesome. Well, where should people go if they want to see more of your work? Let's see. I've got my Facebook page at Art by Anne's and then my Instagram at McDansley, <laughs> which that one's kind of like a hodgepodge of, you know, personal pictures and sometimes art. So if you can like wade through the cat photos, there's, there's some good stuff there. <laughs> nice. <laughs> cool. That's a good mix to have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. It was really cool to hear about all your sculptures and your new projects. Well, thank you. Thank you guys for having me on. Thanks, Ansley. That was a really great interview. And she has finished her Parasaurolophus sculpt. It looks really great. It's fully painted. It's got some wounds that she added to it. Like it recently got into a battle and she's hinting at maybe she's going to make a predator I don't know. Maybe they would they would work together. You could see the one that just attacked it. I don't know. But yeah, definitely check out her work because these dinosaur sculptures are amazing. And it's crazy to me that she just recently switched over to dinosaurs because... Oh, yeah, that's true. They look like somebody who's been working on paleo art for a long time. Yeah, thanks again, Ansley. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Archaeornithomimus. If you've been following along for the last few weeks, you will know that this is a dinosaur that appears in the Jurassic World Jurassic Park series because we are covering those for the next few weeks until Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom comes out. Claire mentions Archaeornithomimus to Owen in Jurassic World, so it's very brief. It was an ornithomimosaur that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Inner Mongolia in the Arendabasu formation. It was found in 1923 during an American Museum of Natural History expedition led by Roy Chapman Andrews, and they found theropod remains in three quarries. They found several individuals, though not much of the skull. It was described in 1933 by Charles Whitney Gilmore as a new ornithomimus species, ornithomimus asiaticus. But then in 1972, Dale Russell renamed it to Archaeornithomimus. Its name means ancient bird mimic. And it's named ancient because Dale Russell thought that it was 95 million years old. It's actually only about 70 million years old, which is still ancient. But uh, at the time, being thought of as 95 million years old, it was that made it one of the oldest ornithomimids known in the 70s. That's still funny to me, though, that it's an ancient bird mimic. How can you mimic something that hasn't evolved yet? (laughs) It's such a goofy, like, look at this thing. It looks like something I see all the time in my day-to-day life. It's totally mimicking that. No, it's not. (laughs) It's the other way around. Yeah. Birds today are dinosaur mimics. This isn't a bird mimic. (laughs) Anyway, The type species is Archaeornithomimus asiaticus, and it's the only valid species. Going back in time a bit, there were other species that were thought to be Archaeornithomimus, but that turned out to not be true. So one of them, Othniel Charles Marsh, found foot bones in Maryland that he referred to as Allosaurus medius. Then in 1911, those bones were named a new species of Dryptosaurus, Dryptosaurus grandis. And in 1920, Gilmore renamed them as a new species of Ornithomimus. Since Ornithomimus grandis was already named, he named it Ornithomimus affinis. But then in 1972, Russell renamed those bones as Archaeornithomimus affinis. However, in 1990, Smith and Galton found that those bones were not an ornithomimosaur and were some other type of theropod. Went full circle. Started out as a theropod, <laughs> another Went type back. of theropod. <laughs> Came around to Archaeornithomimus and then looped back again. That's true. Probably. I mean, I don't know. They just had another type of theropod then. We don't know. Yeah. And then Levnisov named a third species of Archaeornithomimus in 1995 as Archaeornithomimus 
bisectensis, based on a juvenile's thigh bone that was found in the bisecti formation in Uzbekistan. But now, not everyone thinks that this is actually a valid species. Gilmore did not assign a holotype specimen back when he thought it was Ornithomimus in the 30s. So in 1990, David Smith and Peter Galton published a complete description of the fossils and named Electotype. The skull is not known, but it was probably toothless and had a beak. It may have been an omnivore, but that's not clear because there's not enough known about the skull. But if it was, that means that it could have eaten small mammals, plants, fruit, eggs, maybe even hatchlings. It was about 11 feet or 3.3 meters long and weighed up to 110 pounds or 50 kilograms. It had long legs and was fast and had a long tail to help with balance. Other dinosaurs that lived at the same time and place include the Tyrannosaur, Electrosaurus, Manoraptorin, Avomimus, Ovaraptorid, Gigantoraptor, and the Dromaeosaurid, Velociraptor. Cool. Some popular dinos. Yep. Not all that RKO after all. (laughs) (laughs) Other than they lived a long time ago. Yeah, I guess. In the way that all dinosaurs are. And our fun fact of the day comes from a paper by Andrew Knapp where they're talking about some of the ceratopsians. And we talked about this. It was about why ceratopsians had their display structures. Was it to recognize each other when there were a bunch of other ceratopsians around? So some of them developed big horns and other ones developed fancier frills and things like that. But within the paper is nestled a fun fact, (laughs) which is the way they put it, quote, at no point were horns or frills completely lost in any ceratopsian lineage once established, end quote. Meaning basically that once you have brow horns, they were never completely gone afterwards. They always came in handy. Yeah. And I think sometimes they shrunk way down and they were, you know, or maybe they just mean that all horns weren't lost because all ceratopsians at least have some amount of horn and some amount of frill. But yeah, that's pretty cool. And it's a good indication, I think, that it was likely a display structure because once you have it, there's always a pressure to keep something up because it makes you more attractive. I guess it could be an argument for other things as well, though. If it's useful for defense or something, then you might want to keep it too. Whatever gives you that edge. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.